This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and tell a friend to help them find Out of Water also. Welcome, friends, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lautenschlager, and joining me today, as he always does, is our pastor of education, Reverend Sam Kastensmith. And Sam and I are welcoming you to week 10, part 10 of our study from the book of Isaiah and to Isaiah chapter 60, which we have had some of the most interesting pre-show conversations about. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Sam, Isaiah chapter 60 is a prophecy of, and, and I think we agree about this part of it is that it's a prophecy of the messianic kingdom mm-hmm. is that is that absolutely that's correct and so as we were talking about this messianic kingdom both exists now and will exist in the future as right. in a slightly more glorious way yeah every once in a while in seminary circles you'll, you'll hear people talking about you know the now and the not yet right and this is this is i think referring to both of those so the lord has we're told that when he was resurrected and he ascended into the throne at heaven, he has gone to begin preparing a place for us. Um, and so all of that, all of the future glory is already in process, but it culminates when he returns and takes his church to this perfected place. And I think that this passage that we're about to get into is kind of the already not yet, where we are building the new Jerusalem, you know, we're called living stones. You know, the Lord is making this future place of glory out of his people, and but it's not quite yet full glory. We talked about that uh, last week a little bit when I was talking about uh, Isaiah chapter 54. I quoted from Paul in Galatians 4 where he was writing about this new Jerusalem, and, and he wrote that the Jerusalem above is mm-hmm. free, which is the mother of us all. So Paul there talking about the fact that there is this new Jerusalem, if you will, that is above, in some mm-hmm. sense, like we're saying, is in, you know, the Lord is constructing that right now uh, in heaven. Um, do we, we don't, we don't know that that's a faithful reproduction of the old Jerusalem. We don't know, you know, I mean, there's a whole lot of language here that, mm-hmm. you know, it means a, a city whose king is the Lord. You know, mm-hmm. it's like that's that's really what it means, that we're talking about a, a world in which the Lord is at the, middle, is at the center of everything. Yeah, and this – so all through this, you're given, you're given these indicators that a lot of this sounds like you're in glory, and then it'll throw in these details. They're like, well, that can't be glory. You know? <laughs> and so you're left with the where is this happening and when is it being fulfilled? And I think – Part of it is inviting us to see that this is this is in some sense a reality now, even though it's not yet culminating in the final glory. Right. Um, you know, like it will talk about people who are not believers being there and bringing tribute. Um, well, how in the world are non-believers there if it's glory? But then at the same time, it talks about you know how how peace is going to reign and all this stuff, and you're like, well, that doesn't seem like now. It sure doesn't. <laughs> yeah. You know. And so you're you're left going. What's going on here? What it, which is it? Well, let's uh, let's muddle through. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Isaiah chapter 60, beginning in verse 1, reads... Well, before we start, okay. so Sorry. you got to remember that when, right. when they would have read this in the ancient world, Isaiah would have written this on a scroll. So yep. we, as we've said many times, there's no verse numbers or chapter titles in the original writings. And so to understand who it is that he's addressing, you have to go back to the end of this last chapter of 59, and the Lord gives this promise, the Redeemer will come to Zion, which is in Jerusalem. It's the southern part of Jerusalem where David initially built his palace. And he says, the Redeemer's going to come there and to all those who turn from their transgression in Jacob. And then he gives this promise that's very much kind of New Testament age. He says, this is my covenant with them. My spirit who is upon you, my words which I will put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth nor from the mouth of your descendants, nor from the mouth of your descendants' descendants, says the Lord, um, from this time and forevermore. And so he announces who he's talking to. He's talking to Zion and the future generation in whom and upon whom the Spirit of God moves. Um, And so uh, I would argue that this is, you know, the messianic age now that Jesus has left. He's given the Spirit to his church so we can agree that it's after that point. Yep. The rest of it is now when after that point. Right. How far along on the timeline, right? So uh, Isaiah 61, Isaiah 60, verse 1 reads, Arise and shine. Well, not and shine. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and deep darkness the people. But the Lord will arise over you, and his glory will be seen upon you. The Gentiles shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. So at the very beginning here, he's talking about this light. And I saw this, you know, I mean, certainly if you read uh, the Sermon on the Mount, you know, Jesus there very much telling people that that we're supposed to let our light you know, shine before men that they can see our good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven, Matthew five sixteen. Mm-hmm. So there's a very definite sense in which we are to be the reflectors of that light uh, even today. I mean, that was mm-hmm. the, obviously the expectation Jesus had is that you're going to be the and, – and that one, I mean, how many times did Paul tell us, you're the lights – you know, live as light, live as lights of the world. You're the light of the world. Yeah, so, that theme runs all through Scripture. So obviously um, this has a, a now element mm-hmm. to it. What would be the not yet? I mean, I guess the not yet is that they <laughs> – that, that it'll be that'll be more of them coming at some point. I, well, so so the now is obvious that there's still darkness, right? The people sure. are coming from darkness sure. to you, the source of light. Um, and so I mean, I think that's a perpetual thing. Jesus was was saying that of the people that he spoke to, mm-hmm. you know, back in you know John chapter eight. You're the light of the world, he said. And Paul and the the early church is is saying, you know, you were formerly darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. And this theme will run from the moment that he comes all throughout the rest of redemptive history. And so I think this is for, you know, something that's of every generation okay. for me, the way that I read that. And, you know, the qualifier, he addresses who he's talking to when he says, arise, which presumes what? <laughs> you know, how, what is the posture of the people when he comes to them? If he's saying, arise, then they're means, not arisen. They're prostrate somewhere. Yeah, they're prostrate. They're they're humble. Right. In other words, they are bowing down before the Lord. They recognize their need of Him. And to those people, He says, "Arise, shine." And the idea is, you know, they're not shining because you know they have a brightness within them. He says, "The glory of the Lord has risen upon you." And so it's this idea. 
you know, imagine this this utter darkness, and all of a sudden, this light just beaming from heaven is going to come down, almost like a spotlight, and it's going to shine on you so that you are shining to the nations, and they're going to look out of their darkness, and they're going to see you coming out of this position of posture, this posture of, of humiliation and humility, now standing and the light of heaven is shining upon you, and they're going to think from the midst of their darkness, I need to go and, and yeah. see why this person is shining yeah. far different than anything else that this world has presented. And so the Gentiles, the farthest nations, the ones far off, so there we go, New Testament, they are going to come and see your light. And yet I think about that, I like what you're saying, that, that we're in that posture of 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 humility that we're prostrate before him and that and I'm kind of like wow um I'm not sure we've we've reached that point just yet <laughs> it's like um you know one of the things that I've always sort of felt was like hey if somebody comes to you and says you know that one of those like Paul and the Philippian jailer moments you know sirs mm-hmm. what must I do to be saved <laughs> uh, that kind of thing I feel like they see Jesus almost in spite of me mm-hmm. you know this sounds to me, it sounds like the people are better reflectors than we are today. So I guess I feel, I don't know, as I'm, as I'm reading that, and of course then I have the question of, okay, well then what Gentiles are we talking about here that are coming? Is that salvation? Is the Gentiles coming to your light salvation? Or is that the Gentiles coming to your light? Is that the, oh, there's the city over there. We knew we had to relocate. Let's go. <laughs> um, are they moving in or are they you know, joining the, the, the kingdom at that point? Um, yeah, and I think that's a that's a good self diagnostic question that you just brought up. You know, when I when I first came to faith, I remember there I was in a season. It was right after nine eleven. I was working in the financial sector. There was nothing going well at that time. You know, nobody wanted to do business. Everybody was paralyzed with fear. Right. You know, lots of personal struggles in my life. And there was a guy who loved Jesus who was right next door, and to my office. And this guy was always filled with joy to the to the point of annoyance almost, you know? <laughs> like, can you just be in a bad mood once? Like the guy on The Simpsons. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Flanders. Yeah, I Flanders. compare him to that all the time. Hi, diddly ho, neighbor. <laughs> <laughs> but, but no kidding. It was like, what do you have? Like, I, I always wanted to ask, like, how can you always be this cheerful? Like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> we, we have people who come, honestly, who tour Bethany at the school, and they, they will leave the tour being like, everybody here is so happy. It's different. And you're, when you're in it all the time, you kind of lose the reality that it's different than the rest of the world. But I hear that all – when I was headmaster, I would hear that all the time. These people are so cheerful. Like, is there – are you, you know, feeding them spiked Kool-Aid or you – know? <laughs> But that should be something that we're known for, and I'll be honest with you. I don't, I don't get a lot of people who come up to me and be like, Sam, you're so cheerful. What, what's different about your life? Like, yeah. I like you. I don't, and I should. Yeah. Yeah, um, that happens a lot. I'm like, you know, sorry, I'm the, I'm the caustic and negative part of the Christian faith. Um, <laughs> you know, I don't know. You're the um, antimony we talked about last week. We're, we're the darkness that makes the gems shine. It's true that you know all these shiny gems need to have some dark mortar around them. Lord, I'm the mortar. You can just squeeze me out of a tube. Eeyore. Yeah. So uh, okay. So one thing that is true, and I think that this is something that um, 
We talked about this a little bit this morning in personal worship, this idea of this, the darkness shall cover the earth and deep darkness the people. You know, one of the things that we talked about was that there is a uh, – each of us that were there on the call this morning, we obviously – we knew people, friends, family members, acquaintances. We knew somebody who we had been praying for, we had at some point shared the gospel with, and they were just like blind to it. And one of the things we talked about is that it's, that some of this is a, is is kind of within them, obviously, it's within the person. But there's also a very real sense in which there's this sort of external darkness. I mean, there are there mm-hmm. are forces out there, meaning our adversary, the devil, you know, mm-hmm. uh, who actively want to prevent people from from finding the Lord, from coming to the Lord. It's like that's that's kind of their role. It's one of the reasons why. When I became more reformed in my theology, especially as related to salvation, it just made – it rang so true to me. It made so much better sense because if I'm out there and it's just me, Mark, on my own, my own free will, God's not going to come rescue me in any sense. Are you saying that I'm smart enough to outwit the devil? The devil's out there trying to confuse me and keep it from me, but somehow I'm going to fake him out of his socks and find salvation <laughs> I don't know, you know. Um, so we talked about that a little bit this morning about how this idea of this is something that all resonated with all of us. There is a darkness that covers the earth and a deep mm-hmm. darkness that covers people, and it takes the light of the Lord to shine through that. Yeah, the, and that word in the Hebrew that they translate "deep" there, it's even more than that. It's it's actually an experience. You feel it is the idea. The Hebrew verb behind the word that is translated as deep is literally dripping. And so it's like thick. It's like imagine you're wading through this bog and it's just so thick that you can't make progress against it because it's so thick. That's the idea behind this thick darkness. It's, It's a felt darkness. That, and but the Lord will arise over you, and He's going to shine on you, and He removes all that thickness so that you have freedom in His light. Yeah. You know, and it, it draws the mind back to Egypt, right? Mm-hmm. You know, when the ninth plague comes along, God throws it, and it's it's this idea, this thick darkness that was felt. It tells us in Exodus it was felt by the people, mm-hmm. but over Goshen, God shone the light. And so what it's saying here is God is going to do that once again. Yeah. Um, and man, I, I, I'll tell you where, and you know this because we're friends, but my personal life in the church, like there's, there's so much beauty, it's a wonderful family, I'm blessed beyond measure, but every time I look out to the world and I see just how thick the darkness is, mm-hmm. I, I, I have a hard time with it. Like, yeah. that's where, I, that's where my, I get my Eeyore on. <laughs> you know, because if I, if I didn't have internet or TV or anything and I only got to see the stuff that was around me, you know, it would be a pretty um, delight, a, a much more delightful place. Yeah, we have our challenges and I have loved ones who are going through health issues and all that stuff. But man, outside, Outside of the way that you know the Lord has blessed me in, in this bubble I have, it is dark. Yeah, you know people need Jesus, and it's yeah. it's being that light out there in the deep darkness to welcome people into this because without Him, it's it's ugly. 
That was one thing that uh, we all did agree on this morning. <laughs> For those – Sam was at the men's breakfast. You speak at the men's breakfast each mm-hmm. uh, month. And so that's why he missed the, the personal worship time this morning. And and we all resonated that. Beth Hendricks, in fact, um, our prayer coordinator, our wife of our senior pastor – uh, really lit into smartphones <laughs> as part of that. As <laughs> part of her. that darkness, she was like she went off on the smartphones, and I agree. You know, I agree. Yeah. I said, I, I, I think I said it a couple of weeks ago on the podcast. I said I don't want to call it an iPhone 11 now. I want to call it my iPhone. What now? You know, it's like <laughs> every time I take it out of my pocket and turn it on, it's telling me what's what's wrong now. Yeah, uh, you just can't read any news anywhere without finding out that the world is just circling the drain yeah uh and it's tough and there is yeah, a the, blackness that's out there and it feels i think the part that's the most debilitating is you feel helpless to do anything about it yeah like i understand that the world's evil that doesn't catch me by surprise like i'm i'm a bible believing christian i know we're fallen <laughs> but it's the relentless torrent of it that you're just like i feel like i can't wade through any of it the darkness yeah. is too thick um and that's where it's oh. like, okay, I got to remember who's yeah. <laughs> who's in charge of the thickness, who's who overcomes that, because it's not the glory of Sam, it is the glory of the Lord that shines into that stuff. And so that's where I need to be laser focused and being a, a faithful reflector of the light He shines. Right. Well, and now that's hard. Yeah, and now we have prophecies like this one. (laughs) Uh, Verse 4 is talking about lifting up our eyes. Lift up your eyes all around and see. Like, look around you. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar and your daughters shall be nursed at your side. Then you shall see and become radiant and your heart shall swell with joy because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the Gentiles shall come to you. That that phrase, the abundance of the sea, I mean, that's talking about the far-flung peoples mm-hmm. of the world. It's like literally saying that that everything that's that's good and bountiful and pleasant in the world will come to you. It's a it's describing a very bountiful and and uh you know, I mean, literally the whole the resources of the whole world coming together to this new Jerusalem, mm-hmm. uh, and and again, that's that's another, and we'll, this will continue in the subsequent verses. But this is it is counterintuitive because at this time in the ancient world, everything was defined by national borders. Mm-hmm. You know, you were either a part of this kingdom or that kingdom or this kingdom or that kingdom. And what this is saying is you're going to have citizens that come to you from every nation under heaven. So it's going to be, you know, in some sense, it's going to be the kind of kingdom where people are – a city that people are coming to serve from every nation. So it's not one nation that holds the city and says, oh, you know, because I'm geopolitical Israel, I'm in charge of the city. No, this is a city of the world where all nations are now drawn to it and all nations contribute and all nations are bringing their resources to make this city beautiful. Yeah, That's my reading anyway. Yeah, and I, I agree with that. And I think that it's it's one of the things that when I look at this from a now and not yet perspective, the now perspective, when I look around, even looking 
you know, within the church. Mm-hmm. I feel like I see more divisions than ever, not less. It's like people people have a you know they'll divide over the color of the carpet for crying out loud whatever it is it's like <laughs> you're on one side and I'm on the other and we're going to pick up the pitchforks and we're going to go at it and um and I look at this this description of that being there's no more boundaries there's no more us and them it's all us this is like a world that's all us and I look at that and go wow there's a whole lot of not yet there and I'm not sure how much now there is um <laughs> uh, but it is a description of a beautiful and bountiful future. I, uh, one of the re- the reflection questions on this day for personal worship was basically, how do you think it will be to exist in a world in which there is no no lack, no need for anything? No, you don't need any material resources. Everything that you might possibly need will be right there at hand. Um, that's an interesting thing to think about. But to be in a world, it just seems like we are constantly driven by the by needing to meet basic needs. And what the Lord is saying here is that there will be a time where there's no need for that, where all the wealth comes to you. It's like you don't need to worry about providing for yourselves. Everything it will be here that you need. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a blessed future. Yeah, and you know, and I think we can we can look at the the individual trees and kind of lose sight of the forest, or maybe the other way around. But mm-hmm. if you were to stop and say, okay, people who are authentically living out their faith, mm-hmm. and you could you could pull them all together, and you could jump in a time machine and go back twenty seven hundred years to Isaiah, like it's really easy when you're in the middle of the muck and the mire and look at all the ways that the church is dysfunctional because of people like us. Yeah, <laughs> but. But if you were able to pull together and just get a glimpse of the work that the church does, how many people – because you got to remember, in these ancient cultures, there weren't rehab programs. Right. There weren't hospitals. There weren't right. universities. There weren't, there weren't programs to take care of the poor or the sick. We take those things for granted like they are, have been a part of, of humanity. No, those are things that were birthed out of the Christian ethic, specifically the church. And so now when you look around the world and you see ethics that that look after the widow and the orphan and the poor and the foreigner and hospitals and universities and education and and socioeconomic barriers and trillions of dollars that are given in charity relief through the church – like if you were able to pull that together and read that in light of what Isaiah is saying and you just kind of put aside all the petty nonsense that we engage in, it's like – you know what the church is it does a lot of amazing things i can i can look at my family members you know my uncle who has pulled out of a life of total misery through the generosity and and kindness of people um and you see stories like that all over the place yeah and so you know and and these are the wealthy merchants and businessmen and kings and they're in every country under heaven there are men that are following after the gospel pouring their themselves out to lift up the downtrodden um, and to build this new Jerusalem, which yeah. is comprised of all the people of God. And so, you know, it's so easy to lose focus on what a blessing the church is to the world. But in spite of all, <laughs> all of our flaws and the ways that we're, we're ugly at times, the church has blessed the world dramatically. Yeah. That's true, and I and I plead guilty to losing focus on that. It's oh, me it's too. All the really, time. really easy for me to get caught up in what we're fighting about and not look at what is being done well through the church. Um, yeah. I remember we were going through a 
uh, uh, anyway, a fiasco long time ago, almost two two decades now, where something in a church that I was a part of, not not around here, was going wrong. And I came home from work that day and looked at Laura and and I <laughs> I said to her. You know what? I really love Jesus, but his bride is a total <laughs> and I'll I'll let you fill in the blank. <laughs> oh. And that's us. Yeah. You know. Thankfully we're not the hero, we're not the hope. <laughs> you know. Yes. It's the Lord working in us in spite of us and through us. Um yeah. And I think that you know, uh if you've never heard that before, where have you been? Uh there is just one hero in this story and yeah. it's not it's not sam and it's not me <laughs> um, Def- <laughs> that definitely would be a, that us. would be a tragic story it would wouldn't be. it it would be it would be one of those greek tragedies everybody dies at the end that's how it goes mark um, and i are pressing the button <laughs> yep so so verse six uh, as we talked about before the uh by uh, the way i love this i just hebrew imagery when it talks about your heart swelling with joy, I love that because what it's saying is like you, when you see the hope, and this is what we should be, not always what we are. We struggle with this. But when you see and it, the bride just becomes radiant, increasingly more and more beautiful, and it talks about how the heart swells, the idea is it's just there's more room in the heart for all right. these capacities. And this is one of those uh, verses where you know when, when we get to glory – and you think, okay, I'm going to enjoy the Lord for for whatever you know His infinity, however much of His infinity that I can handle, you know, and my capacities. This is one of those verses that talks about how our capacities to enjoy Him will only grow, like it swells. Yeah. So, guess what? Just when you think you've gotten all the joy that you could possibly muster from the Lord, you have all of eternity to chase after and absorb the enjoyment of an infinite God, and your heart will only continue to swell in its capacities. That's a pretty exciting idea to me. Um, You'll never get bored in heaven. (laughs) You'll never get bored in heaven because there's an infinite supply of God and all of his attributes, and your finiteness only continues to swell to enjoy him more and more as you go on forever. That's one of the. This is that's this is one of the places where I've sort of appreciated the more formal language or description from the King James and New King mm-hmm. James, um, because the more modern translations, you know, we don't talk about swelling with joy or swelling with pride so much anymore. It's not a common figure of speech. And the ESV and the New American Standard and other translations have have made that like you you will thrill and exult. Mm-hmm. I understand that, but. The the Hebrew word for swell there is actually a word that means to make something open wide. Mm-hmm. It's like it's just to open it up expansively, and I, part of it is our hearts will be open. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not going to be all closed in and totally focused on ourselves. Yeah. You know, this this is talking about a, a reality, a life in which you open your heart. And I, yeah. I like that. I just like that and the open wide imagery. You know, the antonym of that word. It's like everything is closing in. It right. creates anxiety. There's no freedom. It's enslaving. It's constricting. And this is like you just want to kind of go, ah, I yeah. can breathe. There's room is the idea. Yeah. I've uh, I've taken the too tight pair of pants off and put on the stretchy <laughs> there pants. There you go. Oh, I can breathe again. 
Uh, verse six was the subject of uh, many little inside jokes when I was back at Bible college because the uh, uh, <laughs> back then I have to understand this is in the 1970s, folks. So it was just the King James version, um, and back then the verse read, "The multitude of camels shall cover thee." <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, you know, and we used to joke about it. It's like, it, do you really? I want to be covered in camels um, now. You know, the New King James here, the multitude of camels shall cover your land because it is a, it's speaking to the kingdom there. Uh, but you know what? If it was back in first century time, Sam, having a multitude of camels was wealth, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you had a lot of camels, that's like a fleet. That's an industry. You know, you've got you got lots of limos and cars and tractors or whatever you want to call them. But yeah, that was that meant you were a bigwig in industry yeah. if you had a multitude of camels. And the names that it drops here, the dromedaries of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and incense, and they shall proclaim the praises of the Lord. Those references there are, you know, areas in which wealth was known to be concentrated. Like mm-hmm. It's like this where what they're saying basically is – the floodgates of wealth are going to open up to you. Um, interesting here, too, the dromedaries of Midian, the Midianites were enemies of Israel, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, so the Midianites would have – all of these people dwelled in lands. I mean, what what the Bible is trying to accomplish in verse 5, it says, you know, the abundance of the sea. Well, if you're, if you're living in Israel, right. right, the sea is due west. The Mediterranean's right right off your shoreline to the west. And it's almost like he's working a clock. So then you go down to Midian, which would have been south. Um, Midian was on the uh, straight to the south, you know, through the desert. Ephah, the same. Sheba is in the Arabian Peninsula, right along the Red Sea. And I mean, so Kedar, the same, is over. Naboth is Nabioth is where uh, Nabatu is, which is Edom. It's on the other side of the Dead Sea. So what? In, a, in other words, he's going from west to south to southeast. And it's like saying all the nations from every direction are coming. So he's painting a picture of this map where all these foreigners are now being grafted in. They're coming to this city, and they're coming with massive amounts of wealth. And one of the other things that's interesting about this, Midian is going to become one of the descendants of Abraham. So if you go back to Genesis 25, you'll see the descendants that come from Abraham marrying Keturah. Mm-hmm. So Abraham and Sarah are married. They have Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael is goes off, and Isaac becomes the son of promise. Then when Sarah dies – sorry for this <laughs> – Abraham marries Keturah, and they have six sons. All the names that are here – Midian, Ephah, Sheba, uh, Kedar, Naboth, all of these are descendants from the other line, Keturah. And so it's like saying, you know, even though these are not sons of the promise, they have now a share in the inheritance of Israel. They're coming to participate in the New Jerusalem, which is really amazing. Um, You know, you have Abraham with Isaac and you think, okay, these are the chosen people. And now in Isaiah 60, because of what the servant has done, now all the nations are coming home with tributes and they're coming home to honor the Lord and to worship him. They're being grafted in to this new Jerusalem, which is just an incredibly beautiful poetic picture. 
Yeah, and uh, verse 7, it says, All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you. They shall ascend with acceptance on my altar, and I will glorify the house of my glory. This idea that so cool. they are to ascend with acceptance on my altar. That's like they're not just – they're not coming in as as you know uninvited guests. It's like they're mm-hmm. accepted. Uh, this is yeah. a uh, this is a unifying a description of a unifying moment. Yeah, and if you knew anything about the temple, you had different courts for different peoples, right? You had the court of women, you had the court of Gentiles, you had the court of the Israelites, and you had the court of the priest. And so when it says they these Gentiles shall ascend with acceptance on my altar. What he's saying is all those dividing lines, you know, they should have been in the court of the Gentiles. They shouldn't have been able to get to the altar. But what God is saying is because of what my servant has done, all of those dividing lines are now gone. I will take those Gentiles directly approaching the altar, and I will accept them. There's no division anymore. And now that's something which very clearly has a now and not yet element mm-hmm. because the church today, obviously, I mean, most of us are Gentiles in, yeah. in origin. So we see a now fulfillment in that, that we are accepted before his altar. But then there's also a sense in this not yet where he says, and I will glorify the house of my glory, that there's, mm-hmm. a, there's an even more glorious assembly uh, mm-hmm. to come. So I, it goes from – you know, I will accept their offering on the altar of my house, and then he's saying, I will glorify the house of my glory. And so, which is them, by the way, it doesn't make it clear in Isaiah, but we are all, Paul tells us, we are, we are being made into the house of the Lord. We are, the church is his temple. He dwells in us. So these Gentiles, incredibly, are not just being allowed near the temple. God is transforming them into his temple. Stunning. It's, 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 if they would have understood what Isaiah was saying here, which who knows, maybe the spirit gave them insights, but this would have been mind boggling to someone living in Isaiah's day. Yeah. You know, we get to see it with a little bit more clarity, you know, quite a bit more clarity than they would have. And it's it's a stunning thing that he's promising here. Now, I have heard people uh, say that the next verse, verse 8, is a prophecy of the invention of the airplane. <laughs> it's it's Hey, I'm just saying, it, we, we had this conversation before we started. I said, Gosh. a lot of my dispensationalist past is creeping up this week because this chapter, Isaiah 60, where we talk about well, there's a now and a not yet, and we're not maybe perfectly sure. Oh, no, 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 They're perfectly sure what everything means. They've got it all slotted out. And this verse, who are these who fly like a cloud and like doves to their roosts? They would tell you without without a blink of an eye, say, yes, this is talking about the plane loads of Israelis in exile who will return to the land of Israel once the Lord restores Jerusalem and the altar okay. comes back. And it's like they got it all figured out. That's um, interesting. Yeah, you know, it's like the Nostra. Do you ever hear somebody trying to explain Nostradamus? Yeah, it's uh, like. <laughs> <laughs> you know, all and, of a sudden, there's a, it's pretty amazing how. Well, anyway. and now I look at it and I'm like, but it says they fly like a cloud. I've ridden on an airplane. It's not like flying on a cloud. It's like flying <laughs> on a bumpy roller coaster more to the, you know, so I, the imagery there, I think, doesn't really work. But But obviously, to me, this speaks of, especially the part about like doves to their roosts, this idea of it's a homecoming. 
mm-hmm. mean, that's what that's that's what that's saying to me is that that these people are coming home. Yeah, I've read one commentary, and I, and this is where my brain goes. Like I accept <laughs> it because he goes, he talks about the coastlands right after this, and so what he's saying is, I think that when he looks out in the Mediterranean and he sees all these things that are you know being held up in the sky that look like clouds that are you know flying. It's sails. You know, you have all of these boats and ships that are coming from afar, from the farthest nations, and they are hoisting their sails that are now these, you know, white things off in the horizon. I don't know what it means, but I like that one. Yeah. Um, that look like they're coming home. You know, doves flying to their roost, and so I think that's that's a likely interpretation. Yeah. Um, and verse nine or says, planes. Could or be, planes. Could be. Could be. Could be. Planes. Could be. Could be. Hey, who knows? By the time that we ultimately make it up to the New Jerusalem with the Second Coming, who knows what it might be? We might oh, yeah. be up there with whatever Bezos rockets, transports, you know? <laughs> teleporters, or something. Who knows? Yeah. Right. Um, verse nine. Surely the coastlands shall wait for me, and the ships of Tarshish will come first. To bring your sons from afar, to their their silver and their gold with them, to the name of the Lord your God and to the Holy One of Israel, because he has glorified you. Um, Ships of Tarshish, obviously that's talking about – Tarshish was like a major uh, merchant Mm -hmm. area, marine merchants. So this again is talking about essentially that these power centers of the world will be Mm – Bringing this to the Lord, there'll be you know it's a it's interesting because we sure we sure feel like the secular centers of power and commerce today are not exactly paying any attention to what the Lord is doing. So this mm-hmm. will be a big change in the not yet. Yeah, so I mean, what, Jonah, who is a generation or two before Isaiah, right. so they they're writing pretty contemporary with one another. Remember when he tries to flee from the Lord, he wants to go to Tarshish. Which is, you know, a lot of people think it was Spain. Some people place it elsewhere over there, but it's far, far away in the Mediterranean, and it is a commerce super hub. Right. And now it's saying, you know, now it's no longer the wealth of the their region going to Tarshish, but Tarshish that now is bringing all their wealth to offer to the name of the Lord. Um, so everything's coming in reverse. Israel is now, or sorry, Zion, the new Jerusalem, is now getting the adoration of the world, yeah. which never happens. Yeah. You know, that was a, a rare, rare thing back then. They were usually under the heel or under the threat of their neighbors. The, uh, the one thing that we know for sure is that wherever Tarshish is – it is as far as possible from Israel. <laughs> because when Jonah was looking to book passage, he went to the counter at the shipyard and said, what do you have that is as far away from here as you can get? They went, oh, Tarshish. Okay. <laughs> One for Tarshish. Because that's where he was going. <laughs> <clears throat> so verse 10, the sons of foreigners shall build up your walls and their kings shall minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor... I've had mercy on you. Um, so as I look at this, a literal interpretation of this would be the reconstruction of the actual walls of Jerusalem. But that – I don't know that that's – is that what we think it's talking about here? Is that, a, is that talking about – So I think what God is doing is he's pointing out kind of this cosmic justice. You know, okay. If you remember – 
when the exile does come, when, when they're conquered by the Babylonians, the Babylonians right. will come and they will literally tear down the walls. And the Israelites are going to be carted off and they're going to be sent to Babylon and then Persia and then the Greeks and the Romans and they're going to be forced to serve all of these kings. And what Isaiah is prophesying is, hey, you know the foreigners that tore down your walls? They're going to come to build them up. Do you remember the kings that took you away and forced you to serve them? And by the way, the, the word that's translated minister um, is literally serve. It's just the Hebrew word serve. And so the kings are coming to serve you. You remember the kings that you had to go force, forcibly serve? Well, now they're going to come and serve you. So God is going to you know, make all things right. He's going to bring justice toward the people of God that had been persecuted and, and set things right. So this the city that is uh, that results from this. I'd like this picture. It says, "Therefore, your gates shall be open continually; they shall not be shut day or night, that men may bring to you the wealth of the Gentiles and their kings in procession." Um, you know, the New Jerusalem open twenty four seven. Is that uh, is that a, is that a fair a fair well, prediction? And Revelation, when it talks about the glorified New Jerusalem, the gates are open. Yeah. There, there's no need for them, right. you know. And and the final and the new Jerusalem, there's no threat. Why would you close the gates? Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's it's one. It's talking about the amazing nonstop flow of of goods and services, the health of the city. Like there's so much commerce coming in and out that you don't even have a chance to shut them. But also the fact that there's no threat there. Like if the Lord reigns in this city, right? What need do you have of gates? Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, quite frankly, people who don't like him won't want to come in. Um, but this is – they're open continually. It's, it's, it's a pretty beautiful picture because usually in the ancient world, when night came, you definitely closed the gates. And when you had long periods where there was no commerce, it's kind of like the drawbridge. You know, if you get stuck at a drawbridge, you have to know the times because <laughs> yeah. – You'll you'll be stuck there for a while at these regular times, and that was how they worked gates so that they would avoid ambushes. And this is saying, yeah, we're not we don't even have to watch. You know, we have such favor and protection, and we're so overwhelmingly strong that we don't fear invasion, and our doors are open to whoever may come. So, verse twelve. In the midst of all of these pictures of of beauty and glory and and commerce, and all things are great, and there's no dangers and there's no problems. Isaiah drops verse 12 in, for the nation and kingdom which will not serve you shall perish, <laughs> and those nations shall be utterly ruined. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, you know, if we're talking about the, the not yet part of it, if we're talking about the eventual fulfillment of it, we would be talking about a world in which there wouldn't be anybody that is in right. opposition to them. Yeah, so it can't be glorified Jerusalem. Right. That's, that, this is one of those verses where there's a dead giveaway. Yeah. Um, and one of the other things that you, you see here is in the previous verse, it talked about how um, this procession is coming. Yeah. The New Testament picks this up when Paul's talking about it. I want to say it's in Second Corinthians, and I forget which chapter, um, but it's in one of the first three chapters, maybe fourth. But he talks about how we are constantly being led in a triumphant procession 
And we always think, all right, we're part of the – we're victorious, right? But but a triumphal procession back in the day, like under the Romans, and they had these going all the way back to Assyria when, when Isaiah is writing this. You remember when Manasseh is conquered by the Assyrian king, what do they do to him? They put a hook – and so this is before Isaiah's time. They put a hook in his nose, and they string it up, and they lead him back to Assyria – and when you would have a successful conquest, you would parade all of the riches that you had conquered. You'd bring back new plants and new animals, and you would parade kings and conquered soldiers all through the streets of your city, and people would cheer you because you were a great general or a great king. And so, you know, we have a hard time understanding this, but when you get to uh, Isaiah chapter 60 in that previous verse, it has talked about this procession. And we tend to think, oh, they're coming gladly. But what it's saying is, is they're coming vanquished, yeah. um, but voluntarily vanquished, right? So the men who bring to you the wealth of the Gentiles, their kings in procession, it's, it's, it's with humility. They're coming recognizing that there's a greater king. So they're laying down their treasure. They're laying down their power to another king. And so it's saying anybody who doesn't do that, any nation or kingdom that doesn't recognize that the Lord is superlatively powerful Mm -hmm. and he deserves all honor and all glory, if you reject that, then the greatest kings are going to face utter ruin. Um, But that's, that's, Paul says, that's the story of all of us. We are being led in triumphant procession, which means what? We take our crowns, we take our money, we take our lives. And we're going through saying, the Lord has conquered me, and all glory be to him. And the good news is, is that in conquering his enemies, it's like Isaiah started talking about the, the train of his robe fills the temple. He, you know, And that was a picture. The train of the robe was you stitched in parts of the robe of conquered kings onto your robe. So if you had a really long robe, it means you'd conquered lots of people. But what does the Lord do for them? He makes them worthy to go inside of his temple. So he transforms his enemies into friends. And here, everybody that he has – hopefully this is making sense. (laughs) Everybody that he's conquered, everybody who comes to him laying down their crowns and laying down their lives and their money and everything else that they have are brought in and they're grafted into this glorious city. They're citizens of a new kingdom. But those who say, no, I'm going to sit here with my power and my money and my this and that – you know, if they don't serve, they'll perish, yeah. and that's that's true of the gospel as well. Second Corinthians two fourteen is the verse you were thinking of. Um, it's interesting because uh, that triumphal procession does carry with it this idea of the people in the procession would be captives. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, it's uh, it's like you say, it's a voluntary surrender, but we would be captives. Um, yeah. So when it says kings in procession, there's this beautiful picture mm-hmm. where, like you said, they're coming at – voluntarily captive. Yeah. They're surrendering. Yeah. You know, when, when we talk about salvation, you know, you'll hear the question, have you surrendered your life to Christ? Well, it very much is a surrender. It's saying, oh, my goodness, you're much more powerful than me. You deserve my life. You deserve my loyalty. You deserve everything about me. I'm waving the white flag, and I surrender everything that I am to you. And I trust that you're going to do far more beautiful things with my life than I would have if I continued to think that my life revolved around me. Yeah. 
So uh, verse 13 reads, The glory of Lebanon shall come to you, the cypress, the pine, and the box tree together to beautify the place of my sanctuary, and I will make the place of my feet glorious. Um, we've talked about this before, this idea of uh, when he talks about his feet, this idea that the kings back then had their footstools. And mm-hmm. um, anytime that it basically talked about the, the king's feet, you were talking about the place where his where his subjects were. So again, mm-hmm. this is saying that that the Lord is going to make glorious the, the city which are his subjects. Mm-hmm. The place of his sanctuary. And here again, so we talked about, you know, people coming in the sea, which is the west. We talked about the south with all of the nations of the sons sure. of Abraham. Well, now it's going to the north, Lebanon. Mm-hmm. And so this chapter is painting this picture that every nation from every direction, they're coming to me and they're bringing the best parts of them um, to make this great new city, this great new sanctuary, which is the Church of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, they're bringing the best parts of the world to make a really unique, beautiful place from all nations under heaven. Yeah. Also, the sons of those who afflicted you shall come bowing to you. And so all that's those- the east, right? So now we get the north. Who is it that afflicted you? Well, it's Babylon. It's Assyria. Mm. So yeah. it, now, now he's completed the circle there, all yeah. nations. Uh, shall come bowing to you, and all those who despised you shall fall prostrate at the soles of your feet, and they shall call you the city of the Lord, Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Um, it's just that's kind of interesting because it talks about us being at the verse one, we were prostrate, the glory of the Lord rises, and he says, Arise. And now it's the Lord's, it's the former enemies of the Lord who will be prostrate at the end mm-hmm. of this. Um, you know, and you just look at the the beauty of God. I mean, if you if you were to look at a map at where you know ancient Persia was, that's modern day Iran, Babylon would have been Iraq, so all over in that region. And you, that is, we've talked about this before, the fastest growing church on planet Earth right now is in the nation of Iran. And so these people, these nations that once persecuted Israel, and in some sense still do, they're the people who are citizens of the new Jerusalem, who are our brothers and sisters and fellow citizens of the heavenly kingdom, are now falling prostrate at the God of Israel. It's really pretty amazing. It's wonderful. Yeah. Um, and he goes on to say, whereas you have been forsaken and hated, verse 15, so that no one went through you, I will make you an eternal excellence, a joy of many generations. And um, I was commenting on this a little bit in personal worship. I was saying that, um, you know, Jerusalem wasn't a, like a port city. It wasn't a major trade center. It was, you know, even when Israel was at its extreme power, uh, the kingdom's greatest influence, Jerusalem itself didn't expand and become this huge city. Um, so, you know, the people of Jerusalem were sort of kind of looked, used to being looked down on, you know, mm-hmm. in comparison to these monstrous, you know, incredible uh, places of commerce that continued to expand. So this idea, the Lord is saying, hey, you know what? You were overlooked, but you won't be overlooked anymore. I'm going to make you the epitome of excellence. I'm going to make you Mm -hmm. the center of this all. Um, That had to feel like a – that was obviously was a a really great promise to the people of that time. Um, I'm not sure if I feel excellent, though. 
So this yeah. may be entirely on the not yet side of this calendar. Because on the now side, I'm kind of like, I look around me and I'm like, oh, I don't know about me being excellent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And this promise, you know how the gospel comes to us and we are justified in Christ and there's kind of this this unreal thing to where like we take personal inventory and we look at our lives and if we're honest and if we see ourselves accurately, we go, why in the world would God want me? Grace is amazing. Why is grace amazing? Because we don't deserve it. Like yeah. we're, we're messes and yet there's – in the doctrine of salvation – you know, you are justified already. When God looks at you, he sees the utter perfections of his son, mm-hmm. even as you listen to this right now. So there's there's this, you know, already not yet. You're you're entirely sinless judicially in the eyes of God, and yet you're still a sinner. And I think that there's part of the way that we see this passage where all of this is already secure. And the spiritual realm, if you could see with spiritual eyes, this would be the reality, but the fact is we're still we're still in the muck and the mire of a broken world. Yeah. And so I think that there's – just like our salvation, my guess is that this is the reality. If you could – if you could grant us spiritual eyes, you would see a shining city in the midst of a broken world, yeah. you know. Um, if you could see with God's perfection that you're shining right now with the righteousness of Jesus Christ that he purchased for you, that's how God sees you right now. So when God looks at the world, he looks at his new Jerusalem, it's shining. Yeah. It's eternal excellence. That's hard to believe. <laughs> it's hard to walk in that kind of spiritual reality. Um, but it's the joy of many generations. It's eternal. It's never-ending. That's your reality right now, spiritually, um, which is hard to balance those two. Right. Um, so verse 16 has uh, – you know, it's kind of an awkward wording, but uh, the – you shall drink the milk of the Gentiles and milk the breast of kings. You shall know that, yeah. <laughs> you Hold shall, on, say that again? Yeah, you will milk the breast of kings. Hey, I could – the ESV is even more. It's like you shall suck the milk of nations and you shall nurse at the breast <laughs> of kings. Um, you shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. I mean, obviously, it's 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 saying that that He's going to cause His people to be cared for the same mm-hmm. way that a parent would care for uh, an infant child. Yeah, and this this is this is imagery that goes back into the ancient world. Like when you read when you read a line that says, "You will milk the breast of kings," yeah. you're like, "Wait, what? 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 <laughs> yeah, it sounds modern, right?" But anyway, in the ancient world. The idea that when you suckled at a breast, you inherited the powers of that particular line or family. Yeah. So one of, one of the famous examples that comes from ancient mythologies and the the story of of Hercules, you know, he's born from Zeus and Hera hates him, right? And so Athena takes Hercules and takes him as a baby to Hera, and she doesn't know that it's Hercules, and he nurses at her breast. Until he bites her and she throws him off of her. and But anyway, through that breastfeeding, we're told that Hercules gains some of Hera's power. And so even his name, Heracles, comes from the glory of Hera. But <clears throat> that idea goes back into even more ancient cultures. And so what this is saying, you shall drink the milk of the Gentiles and milk the breast of kings – is it saying you, some of your power, some of your glory is going to come from the power that they have? Mm. Um, it's going to be passed on through you and and to you. Um, that's the imagery that's 
meant here that in modern context we go that means very weird things to me (laughs) back then they would have gone oh okay we're going to inherit what they have the best parts of their kingdom so verses 17 and 18 uh instead of bronze i will bring gold instead of iron i will bring silver instead of wood bronze instead of stones iron i will also make your officers peace and your magistrates righteousness violence shall no longer be heard in your land neither wasting nor destruction within your borders but you shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise i'll tell you what if i could have just those two verses out of this entire chapter those would be the two that i would like to have i mean what the lord is saying here is that everything will be taken to the next level basically Mm -hmm. bronze becomes gold iron becomes silver he's going to make everything that we have now that all of our reality now will become that much better it's it's mm-hmm. going to become improved and violence and destruction and wasting won't even be a thing you won't even hear about it anymore but instead it's going to be peace it's going to be righteousness salvation praise <sighs> that would be a great that would be a great thing to i would love to pick up my iphone one day turn it on and start scrolling and it's like well once again it's just all salvation and praise out here <laughs> Uh, peace and righteousness uh, are ruling at the gates again, and wealth continues to flow in. Uh, the Lord is at the center, and it's all good. So it's going to be 75 degrees today in Davie, and, uh, you know, that, that kind of Gosh, that sounds amazing. <clears throat> Wouldn't it? I would like to have that. Um, it certainly describes uh, a future that uh, I would like to be a part of and that we will be a part of. Um, obviously, again, I feel like this is – if this is a now, it's certainly on the spiritual side of the ledger. Uh, yeah, in the not yet, sure. um, I mean, this is this is looking forward to. You know, the the, the thing that's hardest for me about uh, the world that we live in right now is uh, is just you know man's inhumanity to man, man, you know, the the broken condition of the world, and the Lord is promising that that's all going to be taken away, and when. I've engaged in conversations a time or two with people that are like, what do you think heaven, the new Jerusalem, the new world, what do you think it's going to be like? And I've said, I don't really know. I don't really know what there's going, what it's going to be like, but I can tell you this one thing. I can tell you what it won't be like. It won't be like this place. <laughs> yeah, that would that would be a real bummer. Yeah. You know, it, yeah. You know, and that's part of Isaiah will go there in another chapter talking about how all the, the creatures who naturally have enmity toward each other will be at peace. Um, and, th- and this is frustrating because, you know, one of the things when, when you look at the hope of heaven, um, it can make you impatient with this world. Um, you know, because you, you just imagine what would it be like to have a place where it's there's just righteousness and peace and kindness and the fruit of the Spirit reigns and there's, you know, sin is taken away from our nature and you just see goodness reigning and you can you can think about that to the point where this world starts becoming um, really frustrating mm-hmm. <laughs> and and borderline unbearable in the process, and you can say, all right, I'm just ready, you know, screw this place, I'm tired of it, and right. get me on. Like, I, I think anybody who really seriously contemplates this stuff has probably had that thought, you know, at some point, like, gosh, I'm just, I'm ready for something better. But the, you know, the the reality is Jesus comes to us, and, you know, like in the Lord's Prayer, when he teaches us how to pray, we're to pray that 
you know, his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so here you get Isaiah promising us things that make us go, oh, gosh, like what, what I wouldn't give yeah. to live in a world like that. And the reality is Jesus acknowledges that there's a, a vast difference between heaven and earth. But the new Jerusalem, the place that God is creating for our eternal glory and our eternal destination is underway. It's under construction right here and now. And we, as we pour into other people, as we love those that are difficult to love, as we are patient when we want to rip someone's eyes out and you know, do all those things, like we really are part of this construction project that, right. that's talking about. You know, and so in those ways where we can resist violence or in those ways where we can you know, not be you know, destroying things, in those ways where we can take bronze and make it gold or iron and make it silver, that's what we're called to do. Otherwise, we're just wasting, wasting away here. We're not, we're not contributing. We're not doing what we're made to do. We are, we are God's ambassadors from the new Jerusalem to this world and as much as we can enter into this story to make this place even just a little bit more like heaven to bring the light that he shines on us to just pierce that thick darkness that holds everybody captive you know that's that's what we're called to do and it's hard and it's frustrating and sometimes it feels fruitless and that's when you have to take your eyes of flesh <laughs> and put them away for a moment and read this and trust that you know through spiritual eyes God's mission is yeah. not being thwarted and that he is doing things through your faithfulness that you cannot see and you have to hope in that um I like how it. Uh, I like how it ends here. Sort of, uh, it's like a bookend back to the the beginning of the chapter where he talks about the Lord will r- arise upon you and shine upon you. Mm-hmm. Um, God here talks about that city where we don't need to have a sun and a moon. There's not going to be any. You know that he'll be. Um, the light verses 19 uh, through 22 the sun shall no longer be your light by day nor for brightness shall the moon give light to you but the lord will be to you an everlasting light and your god your glory your sun shall no longer go down nor shall your moon withdraw itself for the lord will be your everlasting light and the days of your mourning shall be ended also your people shall all be righteous they shall inherit the land forever the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. A little one shall become a thousand, and a small one a strong nation. I, the Lord, will hasten it in its time. Um, this makes me think of, uh, I guess, what's Revelation 21.4, mm-hmm. yeah. basically where he talks about, he describes himself as in that new heavens and new earth that he's going to be. There will be no more need for the sun and the moon, that uh, that his light will be all that we need. And, you know, I think that, again, I've had, you know, like, does that mean that there, there's not going to be any planet rotate? I said, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But what I do know is that the Lord is saying that he is going to be glorious, that, mm-hmm. that every part of that city is going to be bathed in his warmth and in his radiance and there's not going to be any coldness there's not going to be any darkness there's not going to be any of the things that plague us today because his presence will be enough to drive all of it away 
And you notice the very definitive shift to the not yet. Like this is talking about the future, the glory. Yeah. You know, God is going to bring His glory, and now there's no more possibility of darkness. That's what's meant there with the the sun and the moon. Could it be that there's no more sun and moon? I don't know. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> but what it's saying is, darkness will have no place. There will be no obstruction to the sun that brings darkness anymore. There's. Right. So he is the light all the time. Um, and the way that this ends where it talks about a little one shall become a thousand and a small one a strong nation, I can't help but think of Abraham there. You know, it's, it's, you know he's, he's going to transform the, the tiniest, the smallest, and make them into a great nation and multiply them. Um, he's going to carry on the promise that he first made to Abraham that through Abraham's descendant, through the servant we've been reading about in Isaiah, he is going to bless every nation on earth and he's going to make Abraham into a mighty nation. And then what does it say here? A little one is going to become a thousand and a small one, a strong nation. So the promise given to Abraham is now given to everybody there, which is kind of kind of wild. Um, I don't know what that means either. It's going to be, <laughs> are we all going to become thousands and strong nations? But it's saying that kind of covenant faithfulness that God had to Abraham, which, by the way, is playing out all through Isaiah 60, is now shared with us. Yeah. Um, it's amazing. This whole chapter is absolutely amazing at what God has accomplished through Jesus that you're seeing played out right now and will continue to see it played out until he comes and perfects it. Yeah. And I also think that he reveals to you know he makes it clear here I think about what this is really all about. Where in verse twenty one, where he says, you know, your people are going to be all righteous, inherit the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. Mm -hmm. um, and that's really what the purpose is for all of this: is that God's glory would be on display. Um, I have you know I have people that will ask me questions sometimes about why God did this, why God does that, why God does the other. And I say, you know, the answer that you – it's, it's tough because I always want to give him the same answer. Somehow this will bring him glory mm -hmm. because everything that God does somehow – Will bring him glory. You know, when I when I've talked to people about the the doctrine of salvation from the get into this Arminian versus Calvinist the <laughs> debate between the highest value being human agency to the highest value being God's glory. You know, we get back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And I'm like, you know, for me, the great mystery is why does God save any of us? And the answer is that somehow it's for His glory. Mm -hmm. And then one of the mind-boggling things, so he deserves every morsel, every ounce of glory. There is none of us who deserve any of that. And yet when he receives glory, what's the line that comes right after that? So it's like he pours it out so that we can share in it, not right. because we deserve it, but because he's good. You know, He's going to be glorified by his kindness to us. He shares with us. Um, he makes us part of the story. Like, think about this. God could have snapped his fingers and brought all this about, yet he condescends and, and shares this story of redemption with us and allows us to play a role in it. Like, that's a pretty incredible privilege yeah. um, to be a part of the story, to work in us and through us, you know, to bring some of this about, ultimately by his power. But the fact that he uses us, you know, it, 
it goes to show that that he wants us to be a part of the story. You know, when he first made us, and I, I don't want to get off on a soapbox because I don't know how, where we're at with time, but when he first makes us, it says that he made man as his Im- in his image, and God is a creative God, right? And he makes the garden, and he tells man and man and woman, "I want you to, I want you to tend it, and I want you to expand its borders to where it takes over the whole earth." But it's like he's he wants to use us to carry out his will. It's like he enjoys the work of his hands, and he's like, I want you to try it. It's like a, a father with a, a son teaching him how to do something. It's like, okay, now you try. And he is wanting us to participate in this incredible work of redemption to where we bring the design of heaven to this earth. Um, and he's he's going to walk us through it and help us play a role in it all by his power. Yeah, all for his glory. Amen. Uh, we're getting eventually back to the garden. <laughs> well, that's a good word, uh, and it's one that we'll uh, we'll have to end on because the clock on the wall says that it's time to go. We hope that you've enjoyed your time with us, uh, that it's been profitable for you. Uh, we hope that you've enjoyed this whole series uh, from the book of Isaiah. We've got one more to go, right, Sam? Is that it? One, one more week? Uh, no, so we're going to do 61, but when we get to the the, the Advents, we're going to do some of the, the prophetic birth narratives. Okay. So, but we have one more week in this particular study, and then, uh, then we'll come back to it during uh, Advent a little bit. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so we'll be doing uh, Isaiah chapter 61. If you want to get started reading ahead, you can read chapter 61. We'll be back to talk about that next week. If you'd like to correspond with us, our email address is outofwater at riovistachurch.com. That's R-I-O, Vista church.com uh, unless you want to complain about all the things that i said today in which case just send it to sam at riavistachurch.com and take yeah the, please do I'd, I'd enjoy that yes take the middle man so long as they're just about mark yeah just about just about the things i say that you don't like you can email sam at riavistachurch.com uh, you can also find there at our website at riovistachurch.com, R-I-O, vistachurch.com. You can find our personal worship system. You can find these podcasts. You can also find um, the messages on Sunday morning that are preached that go along with this series, this study. Uh, we hope that you'll take advantage of all of that, and you'll let the Lord speak to you through it. Uh, Sam and I will be back next week uh, with another from the series in the book of Isaiah. We look forward to seeing you then. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater.com.